Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. The Pali word that's normally translated as rapture is the word piti, P-I-T-I. It means interest or enthusiasm. 
a sense of zeal. It has the characteristic of happiness and the characteristic of delight and satisfaction. When rapture is strong, when it's been developed as a quality, then it pervades both the body and the mind with a sense of lightness and agility. There's a sense of gentleness and smoothness. Sensations in the body feel like velvet, very smooth, very easy. You may feel like you're floating in the air. Or there may be a very active form of rapture, which happens sometimes <coughs> when it feels like the body is being pulled or pushed around, or the body sways back or forth or rocks up and down. In walking, if rapture is strong, then it can often feel as though you're walking on the surface of very rough waves, that there's no, no stability or solidity. <clears throat> you may have a strong sense of feeling off balance. It comes from the energy of acceleration. It's not actually a feeling like happiness is a feeling or sorrow is a feeling, but it's rather the precursor to that feeling. It's the interest itself, the coming together of all of one's energy. It's that sense of cohesiveness that produces that powerful an energy that it can move the body in all of these strange ways. There are five levels of rapture that are described, five types in order of greater and greater intensity. The first kind manifests often as chills or goosebumps or thrills. It's a sense of... <laughs> No, not tonight. <laughs> tonight it's something else. <laughs> it's, it's a sense like the skin is crawling or <laughs> such things. The second level <coughs> comes in flashes, like flashes of lightning. The third level, the next level, is described as the feeling that someone could have if they're sitting by the seashore and they suddenly behold a huge wave coming towards them. There's this overwhelming sort of feeling like you're about to get engulfed. You're about to get overcome by that huge wave. And the feeling is sweeping you off your feet and your heart is pounding. and It's very intense. And then the next level of rapture is called uplifting or exhilarating rapture in which there's great lightness. It feels sometimes as though the body is actually floating in the air. It's sometimes even a feeling of flying through the air. <coughs> and then the last level, the fifth, is called pervasive rapture, in which this sense of exhilaration and cohesiveness and joy pervades every pore, completely saturated or suffused with this quality. When it is arising in the practice, it can be very, very strong. When I was doing intensive metta practice in Burma, I experienced quite a lot of this. Metta is particularly known for the 
deepening of the force of rapture because it is a concentration practice which deepens rapture and because of the great feeling that is involved in it of loving kindness and connectedness which also strengthens rapture. And there were times when I was sitting in a chair in my room and this huge rush of energy would come up through my body and I would be flung to my feet through the force of this or I would be rocking madly from side to side and making an incredible amount of noise. And I kept having the feeling that my friend who was in the room next door had decided that I had gone berserk and that I was throwing furniture around the walls. So in every interview that I had, since her interviews followed mine and I knew she was hearing all of my interviews, (laughs) I used to particularly make a point of bringing up my concern about the social etiquette of of the noise that I was making as my body would just go whammo, rocking and swaying and pushed down to the ground and pulled over to the side and all kinds of things. And I didn't like it very much even though the feeling itself was quite exhilarating, my sense of dignity was quite offended by having my body doing all of these things. And every time I would describe something, an Upandita would say, oh, that's rapture. I would think, that's rapture? (laughs) But it is. It's a very powerful force. to have all of that energy coming together, that sense of zeal. You know that when in daily life that's strong, when we truly feel inspired by something, for example, all of the, the intensity of confidence and energy that becomes available to us, that's the energy of rapture. According to the Buddha, in the direct teachings of the Buddha found in the suttas, there's one condition or one cause for the arising of rapture, and that is wise attention. That means putting effort into and wise attention to being mindful from moment to moment. It's that sense of care, of impeccability. This is the proximate cause. This is the condition for rapture to arise. And then the commentaries on the Buddha's teaching describe many, many ways to develop and strengthen this quality of joy, of zest, of zeal. The first of these ways is a process of recollection and reflection on the virtues of the Buddha himself, the qualities of the Buddha, or the nature of Buddha mind, the embodiment that he represents of all those qualities. The first of those qualities is that the mind of the Buddha is remote from, it's secluded from all defilements that he has completely abolished greed and hatred and delusion. He has a completely purified mind. All of us have experienced a completely purified mind at times. 
for a moment or two or three or four. And so it is not difficult to sense what that might mean when it is simply the way it is, when it does not alter. There is no greed, no hatred, and no delusion in the mind. It's completely purified. The second virtue of the Buddha is that he doesn't act like what the commentaries call the fools of the world who make a practice of vaunting their knowledge and their goodness in the eyes of the world, but in secret are doing the opposite. The Buddha, as I've mentioned before, is considered a completely integrated being. His life is all of one piece. There is not a question of fragmentation, of being together in one area and a mess in others. It is all of one piece. This is the second attribute or virtue of the Buddha. The third is that with the power of his awareness, he was able to understand that which must be thoroughly understood, and that is the nature of suffering or insufficiency or unsatisfactoriness in life that is inherent in life that through the power of his mind he was able to abandon that which must be abandoned that is the cause of suffering or the origin of suffering which is attachment or clinging that he was able to realize that which must be realized which is the end of suffering the cessation of suffering and that he was able to develop that which must be developed, that is the Eightfold Path, or the middle way to the cessation of suffering. Then he is considered an extraordinary being because he discovered this path on his own, without a teacher, without any guidance. If you can imagine what it would be like to sit here or in some situation like this, with no framework whatsoever, no guidance whatsoever, is coming in, trying to take a look at the nature of the mind, trying to discern a path out of one's own suffering. It's quite hard to imagine. So you can get a glimpse of the power of mind that could have elucidated the Eightfold Path with seven factors of enlightenment and the kind of perfect balance of mind that is brought about by the cultivation of those qualities or the law of dependent origination to understand from moment to moment the nature of bondage and the nature of freedom to see that linkage of contact of the senses and feeling and craving or wisdom. What an incredible mind to be able to pick that out out of the whirlwind of experience that we all undergo. And to use that power of mind 
in a direction that is committed to understanding that which is good for beings, that which is harmful for beings, and the enormity of the compassion that propelled him to exhort others to follow that which is good and to leave aside that which is harmful, to awaken others to the truth. And so he is considered, one of the phrases that's used in describing the Buddha is an incomparable leader. Out of that great strength of compassion. There's a story that's told about when the Buddha just following his enlightenment and the first period that he spent in the vicinity of the Bodhi tree (laughs) when he began walking the very first person that he came upon came up to him and was very struck by his countenance and his radiance and said you know basically who are you are you a deva a celestial being you know who are you are you a human being And the Buddha said, I'm not any of those. I am an awakened one. And the man said, well, that might be and it might not be. And he walked away. This happened over and over again in the course of his teaching career. And yet the enormous compassion just to present the Dhamma over and over and to leave it to people to take it, to accept it, or to reject it. And so the Buddha has given us our heritage, which is this teaching, it is the Dhamma, a clearly expounded way to experience the end of suffering in our lives so that we do not have to sit down in a mass of confusion and darkness trying to find the thread trying to understand mindfulness and what it might mean, trying to understand greed and hatred and delusion and what effect they might have upon us, trying to understand the relationship of morality and concentration and wisdom. We have to manifest all of these things, which is our responsibility. But what a gift to have a framework, to have a path, a clear sense of path. It's an enormous gift. Even if one feels very deficient in the amount of wisdom you may have gathered thus far in your life, even if you feel incompetent as a yogi, that you're not the world's greatest yogi and you're not suffusing the world with infinite loving kindness and being perfectly mindful from moment to moment. It doesn't matter. What is really essential is the sense of path. Because without a sense of path, there's no understanding of how to keep moving, how to keep growing. So this is the most important thing. 
And this has been given to us. And this is the quality of the Buddha, that he could elucidate it and offer it in a way that could be clearly understood, even this many years later. And so often to arouse this sense of joy, of, of rapture, of inspiration, people do this contemplation on the various qualities of the Buddha. Doing the contemplation is said to arouse rapture, to arouse faith, to arouse gladness. And when these qualities are strong, then we can conquer fear. We can endure many, many things without pulling away and without withdrawing because of the intensity of this energy. And it's said that if one does this contemplation, then one comes to feel as though they were living in the Buddha's presence. <coughs> so this is the first avenue for developing rapture. The second is the recollection of the qualities of the Dhamma, of the, of the teaching, which is really the essence, even of the recollection of the Buddha. Because the Buddha himself said that one who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. What is really important is the teaching. And teaching is considered to be what is called well-proclaimed, which means that it is good in the beginning, it is good in the middle, and it is good at the end. One understanding of this is that it is good in the beginning of the path, which is the development of morality or virtue, seeing virtue as the root of one's own well-being, that sense of moral integrity. It's good in the middle, which is the cultivation of serenity and concentration and insight. And it's good at the end, with the experience of what the Buddha called the sure heart's release of perfect freedom, the experience of the unconditioned, or nibbana, the end of suffering. As we experience any level of happiness along the path, we develop a sense of rapture. It's an intense sort of verified appreciation. It's like being reborn even within one lifetime. The possibility of completely letting go and being reborn, even in this very same body. That is the greatness of the Dhamma, its transformative power. The fruits of the practice of the teaching are considered to be visible here and now, which means that we don't have to rely on faith in someone else. We can experience the truth for ourselves. There's some story about a monk once coming up to Sariputra and asking him a question which had to do with the Buddha. And Sariputra replied, in this matter, in this regard, I do not rely on faith in the Buddha. And this first monk was really appalled. He was very upset and went around kind of saying things about Sariputra, about how he had no faith in the Buddha and he was disrespectful and all of that. And finally somebody came to the Buddha and described this incident. And the Buddha said, that was very well said, Sariputra. 
You know, on no account should you be relying on faith in me. You should be relying on the validity of your own experience. And for each one of us, the fruits are visible here and now. It's not something we have to believe in because somebody else said it. And we shouldn't believe in it because somebody else said it. It can be seen by a person in this very lifetime. It's not a question of doing good deeds now for a pleasant rebirth in another realm, in another time. It is something that should be showing its effects here and now. There's a quality of the Dhamma which is called ehipasiko, which means come and see. It invites inspection. It's a quality of the Dhamma that is worthy of an invitation to inspect it. The Dhamma is sometimes described as being as pure as a full moon in a cloudless sky. They say, for example, that if we tell people that we're holding gold or money of some kind, and actually we have nothing, we have an empty hand, we don't invite people to come and inspect it. We don't offer that invitation to check things out, to test the validity. If we have the goal or the intention of wanting to exhibit something beautiful to others, to gladden their minds, to make them happy, to offer them some sense of happiness, and what we actually have is something awful or horrible, what we want to do is cover it up. We want to hide it. We don't invite people to come and inspect it, to, to take a look at it. We don't go around showing it. And the Dhamma, in this sense, is a thing of great beauty. One of the descriptions of the holy life that's found in the Buddhist teaching is association with the beautiful. That which is beautiful in every way, in the deepest way. And so it doesn't suffer from inspection. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing tucked away that could not afford to be shown openly. It's flawless, and so it can be presented openly. It doesn't suffer by comparison. And so the Buddha is, I think, extremely noteworthy as a being who said, do not engage in sectarian arguments. You do never, he said, never argue about the Dhamma. It doesn't need to be defended. You simply present it. And never compare it to another system of belief. That's not the point. And many times when people would come and want to engage in some kind of comparative dialogue, he would not say anything. And afterwards would say something like, it is not I that argues with the world, it is the world that argues with me. It does not need to be argued over. 
and it doesn't suffer by comparison. And this is the quality. It invites inspection. It has a quality of being onward leading, that the truth is realizable for every one of us. It can be directly experienced by the wise. And so there is a whole practice of recollecting and reflecting on these qualities of the practice, of the Dhamma, which again will lead to rapture, lead to a great ability to endure, to inspiration, leads to fearlessness. And when the mind tends towards this realization, there is the sense of living in the presence of the Dhamma all of the time. And then the third reflection is on that of the qualities of the Sangha, which are those beings who have been committed to the Dhamma, who have entered upon the path, entered upon that way, and have established themselves in a way on that path that is not wavering, that is not reversible. Beings such as this are considered great fields of merit. When I spoke of the other night about the purity of the receiver, of the recipient of a gift, being part of the purity of that entire force field, of that action, (coughs) this is what is meant by being a field of merit that as people make offerings or pay respects to such beings, they are fields of merit generating that force. I've often considered it quite interesting that in the way that the Buddha designed the rule, the rules for the order of monks, there really could not be very much of a hermit tradition in Theravada Buddhism because the monks are not allowed to store food. They're not allowed to keep food. And so every single day they have to go out for alms or people have to bring alms food to them. And so there's a strong reciprocal relationship between the lay people and the order of monks that is very important. The monks depend upon them daily for their survival. And the Buddha often talked about how somebody on the path in that way who is wearing the robes and is symbolic of the Buddha's teaching has got to be deserving of the food that's given to them. And that it is really a very terrible deed to accept that food that other people might need, but who are willingly offering it, to accept that food and not be deserving of it. And so it's a kind of obligation on the part of somebody who is receiving to be worthy of it. So that is the mandate, to be a field of merit. To reflect on the the purity of this commitment to be devoted to this way, to this path, in a fashion that is not equivocal, will bring faith, will bring rapture, 
and one will live one's life as though feeling the presence and support of the Sangha. The next reflection to arouse the feeling of rapture, the strength of rapture, is to meditate or reflect on the purity of one's own conduct, which I mentioned a little bit the other night. There's a strong feeling of exhilaration when we fulfill this reflection, to remember the patience or the perseverance that might have been needed to restrain oneself or to to act out of loving kindness or compassion in a particular circumstance. When we don't keep the precepts and when we don't act in a way that is born out of loving kindness, then so often there is remorse and self-judgment and not an experience of peace. And so if we can actually live in such a way and we can call upon that memory as a reflection, we can stand firm upon it, then there is great sense of of peace and of repose and of happiness. There's a story in the Buddhist scriptures of somebody who is a very intense example of this. He was a young man who had been fairly wealthy in his lay life and he once went to hear a discourse given by the Buddha and he felt very inspired by that and had a strong sense of spiritual urgency with a lot of faith. And so he gave away all of his property and all of his wealth to his brother and to his (coughs) sister-in-law. And he went and became a monk. He was a monk for some time and was very diligent in his practice. At one time, the brother and the sister-in-law became very frightened that this young monk would change his mind and would decide to leave the order and come back to the lay life and would reclaim all of his wealth and all of his property. And so what they decided to do was to hire these, these bandits, these hired killers, to murder him. And this, this band of hired killers went out into the forest looking for him and found him at, sitting at the root of a tree meditating. And they surrounded him and were about to kill him when the monk said in a very imploring way that he had not finished his task for this life. He had not yet become enlightened and he begged and pleaded for his life. And they said, no. You know, we've, we've come to kill you and we're going to do that. And he said, I just need a little more time. Can't you give me a little more time? And they said, no. How do we know that you're not going to escape and we're going to have to run after you and capture you again? And so what he did was he picked up this really huge boulder and took it. Thank you. (laughs) He took the boulder in his hand and he smashed both his legs. And so he was sitting there completely helpless and in excruciating pain. And the bandits were somewhat impressed with this. And they said, we'll give you 24 hours. And they left. And they said that as he was sitting there in (coughs) excruciating pain, 
he began to reflect on his own virtue. He began to reflect on the period of time that had elapsed since he first became a monk and how in that period of time he had not harmed a single living being. He had dedicated his life to loving kindness and care for all beings and the practice of meditation. He had not told any lies. He had not stolen anything. And as he reflected on this period of time in which he had been so fully committed to the practice of virtue and service in that way to all beings, he became flooded with rapture. So strongly that the feeling of the pain receded into the background. And he began meditating just on that feeling of rapture, which was suffusing his whole body and mind. And as these stories so happily go, as he was meditating on the feeling of rapture, he understood the nature of reality and he became fully enlightened. It can be very powerful. It can be very, very powerful to understand the purity and the beauty of one's own virtue, one's own service and loving kindness. The next reflection is similar to that, to reflect on a recollection of one's own generosity. And again, it's not to imply that one should give, particularly with this in mind, because the best type of giving is giving, wishing for the welfare and happiness of others, or wishing for liberation from suffering for oneself and others but really to understand the power and the joy just of the act of giving and that we can take delight in it in having done it. And there's nothing wrong in that. That even if we have just a little bit, we can give a little bit of that. We don't have to give magnificent gifts and and great offerings. Just to continually share, to practice that kind of opening. And we can take a lot of delight in that which will arouse a strong sense of strength and confidence and rapture. The next reflection is a very traditional one to recollect the virtues of the devas, of beings who have been reborn in the heavenly realms, as being embodiments of generosity and morality and faith and loving kindness. And whether you believe in that or not, it doesn't really matter. It's having a sense of the possibility of an intense development of all of those qualities, whether it's embodied in another plane of existence or embodied right here and now, to really just thinking of those qualities and how beings can perfect them and what the possibilities are is very inspiring and arouses a lot of rapture. The next reflection is on the the coolness or the peace that comes from the cessation of defilement in the mind. I've mentioned it some other time that the Pali word is kalesa, and that it's normally translated as defilement. And a more literal translation of that word would be the phrase 
torment of the mind. And that is the mind that is full of craving, it's full of lust, it's full of anger, it's full of envy or jealousy. It doesn't take much, and it's no great surprise for people who have been sitting and looking at their minds as ardently as you all have to understand that those feelings are states of torment, that actually that's what they are, even though in our daily life it's much easier to disguise. When you're sitting here and there's nothing else happening and you're face to face with fear and envy and jealousy and desire, it's very clear what their nature is. They are torments. And we can understand, even if it's from a single moment, what it is like to experience the mind that is free from those, that is simply present, that is cool, that is tranquil, that is accepting, that's allowing, that is mindful, that is alive, even if it is just for one moment to experience that state of purity of mind. If we can do that, and we all can do that and have done that, even though these moments may seem very fleeting, then we can understand why sensual happiness or happiness of the senses is considered to be a very inferior kind of happiness. I'm not trying to imply that the kind of happiness we experience in the world or from contact of the senses is not genuine and that it's not important and that it's bad in some way. We experience these things. We have the opportunity to experience these things because of very good karma rather than experiencing unpleasant sights and sounds and so on. And so they are signs of great good fortune in a way. They're the consequences of having done good in some way or another at some time in the past, and they are very enjoyable. And yet, there is a quality to sensual pleasure, to contact of the senses at any of the six sense doors, which is kind of agitated. It's almost a sort of burning, feverish quality, because the contact and the pleasure is so fleeting. And then there's that yearning instantly for more. It's a very different quality than the coolness and the peace of a mind that is simply present. That's not dependent on contact of a certain kind, of a pleasurable nature for a sense of happiness. It's a very extraordinary kind of fulfillment that coolness and that peace. And to understand that invokes a sense of rapture, that this is possible for us, a kind of happiness that is not dependent on anything at all. We can be extraordinarily happy sitting here cold and hungry. It's amazing. That this is possible for us can bring about <coughs> this sense of 
cohesiveness, of wholeness, of interest, of zeal, of delight. That is rapture. The next way that's described to develop this quality and to strengthen it is keeping the company of people with great metta in their hearts, with great loving kindness. That to dwell in this aura of love and warmth and care brings about a strong sense of rapture. And of course, if one doesn't have such people in the immediate environment, the conclusion springs to mind of being such a person, which will invoke great great delight and great rapture. And then the next is to be able to reflect on the benefits of the practice. If you read something like the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the sutta that the mindfulness practice is based upon, it carefully delineates the benefits of the practice. That if you do this practice, if you observe the body and feelings and consciousness and the Dhamma, and if you do it ardently, if you do it energetically, if you do it wisely, then you will put away all greed, all grief, and all anger. The beginning of the metta practice is a traditional recitation of the 11 benefits that come from doing metta. You sleep easily, you wake easily, people love you, you'll be protected in life, and it goes on and on. This is what happens. To understand that what we are engaged in will bring benefits and to have the confidence that surely the benefits will come. It brings a great sense of rapture and delight in what we are doing. And finally, the last way to bring about the sense of of delight, of zeal, is to firmly and consistently incline the mind towards the development of rapture. (coughs) The sense of delight, of enthusiasm will arise when the kalesas, the defilements, are put aside even momentarily, when the hindrances are put aside even momentarily. And so one needs to put in energy towards being mindful from moment to moment. If we're mindful from moment to moment, that will bring about the power of concentration. The power of concentration will put aside the hindrances. So if we are fully committed to this task of being mindful, whether we are sitting or walking or standing or lying down, then that is the perfect way to develop and strengthen this quality. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.